Welcome back to Trending in Education. I'm Melissa Griffith. I'm here with Dan and Mike, and we're about to do an episode on unconscious bias training. And let's take it away, Mike. Opening thoughts. Opening thoughts. Wow. Uh, I'm excited that Melissa brought us in uh, to show that we we have some range and some flexibility. And uh, you know, I, I think you'll continue to bring it. Uh, with uh, with your inimitable flow, so thank you for for introducing the topic of uh, implicit bias, unconscious bias training, and uh, it's interesting because the jury's out, right? Like the the implicit bias training is a pretty widespread uh, thing that's happening. It's a trend that's happening in a lot of different organizations these days, and like any trend, it frequently triggers a counter trend where people start questioning whether it actually works. And uh, what's really interesting is you start doing a little bit of research into this topic and you realize there's, there's literally hundreds of links and TED Talks and YouTube videos to dig into. So um, I think we'll probably just scratch the surface today. But, uh, but yeah, it should be, uh, should be an interesting, interesting conversation. Uh, Dan, uh, how, about, how about what are your thoughts on, uh, on, uh, on all of this? Well, it uh, harkens back to the Starbucks episode we did uh, a long time back about their unconscious bias training with the incident in Philadelphia and then what happened after. And I, I think all three of us at the time questioned what comes next. Is there a, a follow-up? Is there a way to assess how this training goes? And I think that's something we talked about in leading up to this record of how are we determining outcomes? What are we looking at from a learning perspective? How are we understanding, is this working? And uh, I think it's all, to your point, a, a large topic, one that we may not get to the full answer here in on this podcast, but a conversation that's going to keep going on because this is becoming, you know, another one of those regular HR training videos you need to sit and watch, another one of those topics you hear on uh, in corporate trainings or, or the like. So it's going to be one that stays for a while. So, so for us new to the podcast or new to the training, uh, one of you guys want to take the lead on what is implicit bias, implicit bias training and why should I care about it? Sure. Uh, so implicit bias training is uh, training to help elevate uh, your workforce, your individual's awareness of the implicit biases that we all have around uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, basically any way in which people uh, identify themselves, um, there is a tendency uh, that we all have to ascribe certain stereotypes, uh, behaviors, um, uh, positive or negative assessments of individuals based on um, some, some biases. And a lot of this is based on research uh, out of Harvard. Uh, there's a test uh, called the IAT, uh, and we'll share out some of the links to, uh, to Harvard's research. And uh, you can actually take the test yourself uh, to determine um, what kind of implicit associations you have with certain uh, concepts. So for example, if you're asked to, uh, to imagine uh, an airplane pilot, uh, what do you think of? And if you're trying to sort of come up with that idea in your mind, uh, without any uh, pre-training, without any education about, um, you know, elevating your awareness, uh, there's a tendency to gravitate towards stereotypes. And there's a tendency to, uh, if you're thinking of an airline pilot, to probably think about 
like a white man with with a mustache, you know, because uh, at least I have the mustache part. Uh, but uh, but like that's sort of the the tendency. And uh, what what a lot of the implicit bias training does is uh, try to get a workforce to understand that these biases exist. And then the question that is raised by a lot of these trainings is, does just elevating that awareness around implicit bias actually drive towards better outcomes around diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, and belonging? And uh, that's where the, the results are somewhat mixed. Generally speaking, the, the finding is that, you know, we all have implicit bias. Um, it's sort of wired into our brains. And, uh, you know, it's sort of in-group, out-group thinking uh, is sort of a natural way for, for humans to, uh, to behave, at least evolutionarily. And, uh, and then I think the good news is that with training, you can elevate awareness and then by elevating awareness of those biases, you can start to um, untrain yourself, unlearn some of those biases. Um, but it's, it's hard, especially for people who haven't been exposed to, uh, to other cultures, to other um, uh, people who aren't like themselves. Um, so does that answer your question, Melissa? It, I think you've answered, you've answered the question on what is um, implicit bias. I think for me, the question you haven't quite answered, and I, like personally, I know what it is. I'm giving you a, a chance to, to be woke and be more woke. But um, like my, my, my real question is why, why should people care? Because I, I have a passionate view that I will well, share in a bit. But I think the hard part for a lot of people is because it's unconscious or it's implicit, you don't always realize that you're having this reaction and the effect it's having on others. And I don't think you've answered the, for, for your, the fellow men out there or the fellow white, white people out there or anyone with a bias. Because by the way, I'll, I'll just share something. I've taken the test in the past and I also, like, there is an, I also have an implicit bias mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it is weird for you to even realize that as a black person that you have a bias towards uh, a certain race that also tends to not be your own. And that's mm -hmm. the problem with it. It is, it is built into you from young, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, without being aware of it, you are actually, we all suffer from the same unconsciousness. But I don't think people actually understand how, why it affects you and what are the ramifications of when you have this bias and you don't know you have it. So I'm hoping yeah. you can still answer the why, why should I care? Yeah, uh, so I think why you should care is that, uh, you know, the implicit bias that you're right, it exists in all of us and the research shows that. And interestingly, sometimes it is flipped in the way that you're describing to where like the bias is sort of favorable towards, uh, you know, white culture or towards uh, males, uh, even among uh, women or, or people who aren't white. Uh, but what's what's particularly interesting or challenging within organizations is that frequently the power resides in those sort of privileged um, identities. So like majority white, majority male uh, leadership. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, boards of directors and uh, sort of senior leadership within organizations, how they're uh, they're predominantly white, predominantly male. In those contexts, frequently there is implicit bias the leadership is making decisions, uh, making hiring decisions, making policy decisions 
figuring out how to compensate their workforce, figuring out how to train and develop their workforce, if that's being done by a predominantly white male power structure, it's going to reinforce the, the behaviors that many of us are arguing are damaging to a work culture, particularly when the research indicates that more diverse cultures, more diverse leadership makes better decisions, suffers less from uh, groupthink, and is more likely to, um, to affect policies and uh, offer new products and services that reach new markets. So one of the things that I think frequently is missed when arguing for diversity and inclusion is that it's actually good for your business. Like if your organization and your leadership is more diverse, the decision-making will be better, the ability to tap into new markets will be stronger, and, and your culture will, uh, will also be more responsive. So hopefully that's a little bit more of uh, explaining uh, the why. Uh, but I'd also love to hear your, uh, your take on some of this stuff uh, as well, Melissa, because uh, you know, uh, we're trying to avoid uh, too much mansplaining. I, I was quite of, enjoying uh, the mansplaining. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was a trend. Um, no, and also we 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 should bring that into the conversation because I actually think I am. Everyone has a different experience to this, right? So I will I will make a couple thoughts. Uh, some of them applicable. Some of them um, follow as usual my streams of consciousness. I'll bring you back in the end. Um, one, I. I had, an, I had a couple implicit biases in me that I didn't even realize. So yes, uh, when you grow up, when you grow up in any society, regardless of what, especially in the Caribbean, you are, you are just bombarded with, uh, with U.S. television. And so you are bombarded with U.S., like what the U.S. perceives in you. And you, I don't even think I realized to the extent how like I, you're taught to, to fear a person you're taught to fear more a black person or a black man on the street and you cross the road much more likely for that person than, than a white male. Like those are the things that you're taught because you're from a very young age, that's what you see on TV. And like when criminals are all, almost always black or Hispanic mm -hmm. and, and the savior is almost always white cops, like that's how it used to grow up. They've, they've done a lot better job on TV shows recently to mm -hmm. change that. But when you are taught that it, it is, built into your your psyche and so one of those things that some of those tests do is they test your ability to recognize positive and negative and how fast you can recognize yes or no and mm -hmm. like even even i was like far slower to to recognize a a, a, a good black person than a white uh, a good person and it, that is what really makes you surreal so i would say that's one two i would say the test that you don't even test for I had preconceived notions of what being black in America were that mm -hmm. had nothing baked in reality that I've since then uh, become even more conscious of since I've become, come here. And you can, you can almost learn. I learned a lot more being in this society than out of it of wh why it is. Like I told when I first got here, oh my God, black Americans have a chip on their shoulder. That mm -hmm. is absolutely not true like the lifestyle that they've lived the more you um go through it the more you realize that like there there are a lot of biases that are unconscious that that have led to and i i think you hit on this point and that's so i'll reiterate it the power the power dynamic who controls the power so policies mm -hmm. are set by policies are set by like 
traditionally our Senate and our U.S. government, which is, has been for a long time predominantly white, predominantly white male, and it go, that go, permeates throughout the entire government. And so those policies are set, and they're set in a way that are tend to have the implicit bias built in that cause perpetuate the social classes mm -hmm. um, to continue to have for neighborhoods to, to be completely uh, segmented where poor neighborhoods and predominantly um, Hispanic neighborhoods and black neighborhoods do not get the same level of funding. All those mm -hmm. things are why these unconscious biases matter. So yes, for a company, for sure, it matters to you because if you, it, like you, remove yourself from it it will like uh, you will probably do better as a society as the world goes but it matters far more i think to our culture because you will never get out of this dynamic unless we um unless we start to address it and i don't i like train and the verdict's out for me i agree the verdict's out on whether the trainer works but i think you gotta keep trying something and particularly i i think and this has been the topic the police force really needs like really needs this type of training and mm -hmm. it to be built into their curriculum. So yeah. I've said a lot. Uh, I will I'll flip it to Dan to see uh, what he he has to say on the topic. Well, I, I think selfishly and personally, it's uh, wanting to make better decisions. So so like knowing this exists for everyone in some way, shape, or form, and knowing that it exists for myself, just learning how to deal with it better and and the training that can go with it of taking the pause, the visualization or, or examining of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I think is just personally a goal of mine. Like selfishly, I just want to get better at why I'm making the choices I'm making and why I'm maybe choosing things for a specific reason, fight or flight, or because of the way I was raised or what, as you said, Melissa, what TV shows and movies I watched and what that taught me growing up. So personally, that's it. I think we need it because of those same reasons that it, it doesn't necessarily become everyone's personal goal to better themselves. We've talked about quantified self, Mike, many times over and tracking our data and understanding how we exercise and how we learn. This feels like it's the same avenue on a personal level, just getting better at making decisions, being a better person, if I can put that sort of in, in air quotes on what that really means and, and how we go about our, our daily lives. What I find most interesting about the topic as a, a learning subject, Melissa, is one, like, like I said before, learning outcomes, how are we tracking them? And how are we getting feedback on what works and what doesn't work? And in the corporate setting, Melissa, can we make people and can people be comfortable enough to be uncomfortable? Can they be open enough to be wrong? And I don't know that that often happens in HR trainings or in corporate trainings where people just want to get through it. They just want to, you know, make sure they check that box for the year, do their training and move on. This is a little bit more personal, a little bit more, I have to be open to being told no, you got that wrong. You need to do X, Y, Z to better yourself. Yeah, and I, I would say a couple of things. One, I, I fundamentally think uh, HR training needs to shift, right? Because I find it the most torturous thing in the world to do like uh, this, these videos where you like, you're almost, it's, it's, it's worse than mansplaining. You're literally putting these um, situations in front of me and you're like, look, this is how you react to it. And I, maybe some people need this, but the problem with those trainings is they're seen as mandatory. They're seen as things that you have to do, right? And, and they almost, every time I have, I've said this, and some of them are better than others, every time I do a training like that, I am more resentful than less, right? And that's, and that's the challenge with it. Like, I think something like this, there's got to be a new way to put it into uh, organizations to really get people to first 
wake up to the possibility because that is the thing like this is a problem like I, I don't know if the, this is why I was pushing Mike at the start is, I don't know if a lot of people actually believe this is a problem. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, yeah, maybe, but I'm, I'm smart enough to realize it and do it. And I will tell you, I've had conversations, it's definitely gotten better in my career and I've learned to speak up for myself, but I've had times where I've literally said something completely dismissed and then uh, a, a white counterpart would say something and then all of a sudden the exact same thing and it would be responded to so much so that I used to test this theory and I used to tell the person what to say just to see if it would go through. And it did. And that is a real, I, that is a real problem. And right? I, I like, and, and until organizations realize that you are, and Mike, I'll turn it over to you to talk about this point because I think you're going to make it well. Like you are disenfranchised in certain groups in your organization and you're going to lose that talent that you are, you claim that you want to hold on to, um, it's, it's, you're, you're going to have a problem. So I think it, I don't think these videos work. I think you need a new way to teach it. Mike, I want to turn it over to you to talk about belonging. Cause I, we were talking about that in the pre-show and I think that actually, it's a good point. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not mine, but, uh, but yeah, the, Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, you know, originally it was uh, diversity and inclusion, then equity was added. Um, recently, I was at uh, the Ithaca Next Wave uh, conference in New York, and uh, they had a really interesting panel uh, where they were talking about um, diversity uh, in general, and they added the term belonging. Uh, and I've seen more of that uh, of late, uh, which I think is a good trend in terms of these trainings where. Um, rather than viewing um, diversity and inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as something that leadership or the sort of power structure within an organization needs to do to sort for its quote unquote workforce so that they can say, we're doing something for you. Look, we're rec you know, recognize that we care about you because we're doing diversity and inclusion. Beyond that, there's this notion of belonging uh, which is also tied to some sense of ownership of the culture, uh, which uh, I think is the next level insight where rather than feel like, let's say I, I am uh, both a minority in terms of the, the, the broader US uh, culture, but I'm also a, a smaller percentage of the workforce or uh, in the case of the conference I was at, we were talking about um, higher ed, like universities, um, to, there's increasing awareness that you do want to engage those diverse uh, populations to actually make your culture more vibrant. But it, the only way it's ultimately successful is if those, uh, those members of your culture feel a sense of belonging and ownership of the culture itself. And frequently that requires additional work from the organization itself to cede that authority and give permission to the, these um, smaller parts of your organization, minorities, uh, underserved populations, to feel like this isn't something that's being handed down from on high. Uh, same reason I think there's lots of times pushback against the HR trainings, the way you're describing them, Melissa, is that you don't really feel like you've engaged in that conversation. You don't feel connected to why this training is even happening. It's out there because uh, it's really more of a compliance thing. Like the organization wants to check a box and say that they're doing it, as opposed to if the these 
all these populations are treated as though they're vibrant and critical parts of the culture who have a leadership ownership stake in the future success of the company or, or the culture. Um, I think that's the pivot that uh, I think is a next level insight. And then uh, to build on your point, Melissa, I think frequently that's not, that's not something that can be done through asynchronous trainings. Uh, that's something that um, from what I've seen is best done by adopting practices that give everyone within your culture uh, a sense of voice and a sense that they are being heard. Because uh, even in your example, Melissa, I think frequently um, when people are, you know, in a less diverse, inclusive culture, to be heard, you need to be of the sort of dominant identity. So like to be heard, you need to talk like a white guy and exercise power and authority and assertiveness in a way that is typical for, for say like white men. And um, for those cultures, and it, probably the majority of, of, of work cultures at least are beginning from a place that's something like that, uh, to affect that kind of change requires the people who have the authority and the people who have established these sort of power structures to recognize that they're gonna need to cede that authority and give up some of that power to actually allow their culture uh, to thrive. And um, I think it's increasingly becoming an existential challenge to many organizations. And the ones that aren't able to evolve in this way are, are gonna become increasingly limited in terms of the way they think about strategy, the way they think about market opportunities, the way they, um, they engage in critical thought and are able to kind of challenge assumptions. Um, all those things are really powered by giving a voice, giving a platform um, to all of your workforce. And frequently because the ways in which different people from different backgrounds typically want to engage is, is different. And those who haven't been in power may need more scaffolding to feel comfortable asserting themselves. It actually requires a lot of work from the people who are uh, in power. And the related challenge around a lot of these trainings is that there can be a backlash from the white people, men, people who are in uh, those positions of authority that roll their eyes and say, well, I got to do another diversity and inclusion training. What do you want? Let me, let me fall on my sword. You know, this is the whole concept of uh, performative wokeness, which I've, I've talked about before, which is like, I need to signal that I am at fault. I need to accept that I am part of the problem. And, um, and then there's even a, a sort of reaction against the people who are uh, comfortable saying that I am biased and I have these problems. Um, there's almost like uh, a subtle distancing that happens from the people who want to signal that they are biased and that they, they need to evolve and change. And then those that say, why are you putting me through all this? The organization is working and it's fine. And we see that reflected more broadly in the culture now too. If you look at some of the uh, political strife that's out there and some of the reaction on college campuses and um, and even if you look at our um, divided electorate nowadays, there is a lot of 
consternation about reverse discrimination and about the, the fact that there is racism against white people. And um, that's why to Dan's point, like, I don't know if people are ready to kind of wade into this. This is something that like, again, like we're raising this topic now. I think it's something uh, we're gonna wanna come back to on a regular basis uh, because I think this is some of the most important training and um, behavior change that is gonna need to happen for not just our work culture, but just our culture period to respond and survive in the 21st century. It's like, we're gonna have to get better at talking about this stuff, get more comfortable with the discomfort, get more comfortable with the emotionally charged aspects of these things. Uh, but um, but it's complicated, you know? So uh, Melissa, any thoughts? I, I mean, I do. I wanted, I wanted to ask Dan a, a question as well, and then I, I will give, uh, give some thoughts um, on this topic. Dan, have you ever seen it work? Like you, in your, in your career, have you actually done implicit bias training and have you seen it work? And what were some of the things that make it, made it helpful? So I think work in a sense of opening up people to understand it exists. Yeah. So I think there's like the education function of just talking about implicit bias, right? Like these are the things that happen. Here's the definition of it. Here's how people carry these things with them. I think that works. The, the, the strict education, the individual dealing with implicit biases, I think has been hit or miss in the couple that I've been in. I've found personally, anecdotally, no scientific data behind it. But when it is to Mike's point, um, a, you know, a safe space to use that term, but a one-on-one -on -one or a small group setting where you work through scenarios and actual tangible things that people can discuss through, not a computer screen where Phil and Janice had a conversation and you need to say what was right and what was wrong about it, but an actual conversation where people can be honest and open. I've seen people at least recognize and grow from it. Again, does it change the hierarchy of the company? Does it change how they may interact on a daily basis? I don't know, but I've noticed people at least pause, at least take that second to maybe think through what should I say here? What should my reaction be rather than just sort of firing on the back part of our brain from when we were Neanderthals, like just getting through and, and making sure they're taking the time to, to do that. That's a win in my book. I think that is it working. But to the scale we're talking about here, a Starbucks, a, a giant corporation trying to train their workforce, I haven't seen really a ton of data, to Mike's point also, how it's all going to be tracked and implemented and really seen to be working on that larger scale. Yeah, and I think, so I will, I will add to your point. And, um, the, for, for me, I, I think the challenge is, like, what is the metric that we're going to judge the success on? Like, uh, like this this is to me it's more it's much more of a journey than than it actually is there's a destination to go i don't think we're ever gonna we're never all gonna be completely woke right like like that is like what does that even mean right because we all know we have biases and as as we become aware of some of these biases others will fill their their place right like the biggest the biggest thing for me i think in in this journey with, to understand was one i have biases that i didn't know about i'm, I'm sure i have biases that i still don't know about and I, what i found much more interested and so a friend of mine turned me on to this book um waking up white and, and finding myself in the story of race and they're like it wouldn't apply to you and i was like no I have got to read this book and I'm in the process of reading this book because 
it's doing a couple things for me. One, it's it's waking me up to just even more the level of like challenges that history has presented on the U.S. and and the world. And two, I it gives you perspective on the other side, right? On what other people are experiencing, right? And so I have I found myself recently reading a lot of books that are are meant to show other viewpoints, right? Because I think that is in terms of training ourselves, and it is, I think, a journey, in terms of training ourselves against this bias, you have to first recognize that we are all different um, and we're gonna come at things from different. And it's not about actually being able to like eliminate these biases. It's about being able to have a conversation about it, which is why I, I do, I appreciate this, this podcast a lot because we are at least willing to have the conversations even though we are like, we don't necessarily have all the answers. So I'll turn it over to you, Mike. Uh, additional thoughts, closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the ability to empathize and seek out seek out difference, um, which, uh, which is another thing we didn't really get to, but also like in terms of your hiring practices, um, rather than hiring for a quote unquote cultural fit, hire for a cultural ads. Uh, so seek out things that are different aspects, whatever they might be, but like, if you're hiring like the, the 11th or 12th member of your board and you have, you know, 10, uh, 60 something year old white guys, you know, is the 11th 60 something year old white guy gonna add value to that conversation? Are they actually gonna bring a different perspective? Maybe, you know, like if, are they, um, if they have a different sexual orientation or, you know, have, is there something about their upbringing that's different? Socioeconomic status is another way to think about diversity. Like there's plenty of ways to, to sort of cut it. But if you're not seeking out diversity, um, you're actually limiting your ability to make good decisions. And uh, there's a, a really interesting book called uh, Super Forecasting uh, by, by a guy named Tedlock. And uh, he talks a lot about it within that book about how the people who are best at making predictions and anticipating what's coming around a corner are those who are able to adopt a lot of different mindsets uh, and in some ways as an individual can sort of incorporate diverse thinking. There's a lot of that out there in terms of the research and it's a lot easier to incorporate diverse thinking into your own mindset if you're exposed to difference and I think frequently that means put yourself in uncomfortable positions. If you're, you know, if you are a white man, get yourself out into context where you're the only white person in the room or you're the only uh, man in a context and do that in a way with some humility and understand that you are gonna bring, you know, what it, people will have implicit biases about you, but just realize that the dynamics can flip and that it's all about context and um, I think those are, are sort of my, my top level thoughts. And, uh, and then at the same time, like, um, I think if you're not backing up the raising of awareness with more concrete practices that will actually drive cultural change, there's a really good article uh, that we'll share out by, uh, by Sabrina Renee Kinkle at the Cultural Intelligence Institute where, where she basically makes the same point where, you know, if you're elevating consciousness around, um, around implicit bias, but you're not adopting cultural practices or the culture, there's not enough psychological safety within your culture to begin with to allow for, 
for these types of conversations, these vulnerable conversations to happen, you're actually not going to be uh, successful. So I think, you know, the whole culture eat strategy for lunch, uh, I think culture can also uh, eat diversity and inclusion uh, for lunch. And if you can't sort of address those problems within your culture, bringing in some consultants to talk about implicit bias isn't really going to move the needle. If anything, it might reinforce some of the underlying problems in your culture. Yeah, no, I will agree with you. I w the, the thing I'd add, because you said an interesting uh, point there about like putting yourself in, in different situations where you're the only uh, white person or maybe the only guy in the room. I'd also say like, for me, I have a lot of these conversations um, because I, you know, I tend to be in situations where I am the only black person in the room or I am the only uh, female in the room. I would, what I'm always curious about and what I actually think is going to move the needle is if when you're together with your, like your friends and, and, and just like watching football or something, whether these conversations actually happen, right? Like when, when there is no one like judging you in the room, are you having those conversations? Because that's when you know it's starting to, to feed into the psyche. Cause my, my worry is like it, like if it's, it almost feels sometimes like lip service when we do things like that. And mm -hmm. it's when you bring it together that it's going to make, uh, make sense. So mm -hmm. that, that's my final word on it. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you have anything to, to add. I, th I think you just hit on the, the performative wokeness, honestly. The idea of like, if you're doing it in front of a, a group that is supposed to feel that way, then uh, you're, you're not getting the job done. Like if, if you're not thinking things differently when you're in your comfort zone or in a place that you are typically uh, the same as everyone else, then... The, the training or whatever introspection you might have been doing isn't working. And thing, Mike, you nailed it for me on corporate side. If it's going to be a one-off where you bring in a speaker and then you never address it again, I think we found over the years that that just doesn't work for anything. You know, it doesn't work for your marketing strategy. It doesn't work for your HR. It doesn't work for finance. You, you have to work at it and you have to keep coming back to it and uh, uh, space repetition, right? When it comes to learning, teaching something, coming back to it, making sure it's understood, making sure people have the tools to practice it properly. I think that all applies here. And uh, I think it's going to be one that we track and one that's going to grow. And I think something to track too is how many companies try to profit off this? How many start creating specific tools that are this? And how do we track that as well? How are people using it to gain an upper hand in HR or hiring and those sort of things? So I think that's all pieces that can really come into this conversation. So this has been Trending in Education. It's just the start of the conversation. Mm -hmm.